Heavenly Father, I earnestly pray in Jesus' name that You will send Your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the tremendous lessons about Your character, Your wisdom, Your power, Your love in the book of nature. Send Your Holy Spirit, I pray, to uplift Jesus among us. And to Him is all the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, Amen. The first part of this talk is going to be answering the question, why Jesus and science? Why not God and science? Or religion and science? Jesus and science is not academically palatable, really. I've worked in the scientific community for almost 30 years, mostly in the U.S. Department of Energy complex. And I can tell you by personal experience, speaking about Jesus is not always, uh, what shall I say, um, wanted. The scientific community goes forward on the assumption of what's called methodological naturalism. We do our research as if everything happened naturally. There may be a God, but we don't involve God. God is not important in the process, in the equation. We try to explain everything as if God did not exist. Methodological naturalism. Now, why Jesus and science? I want to tell three stories. Let's see, okay. The first story comes from 3,000 years ago. The second story from 2,000 years ago. And the third story from my own life. Why I think it's so important to unite Jesus and science. 3,000 years ago is the story of David, king of Israel. And he was a man who had everything. He was king. He was wealthy, popular. He had power. And yet, he did not have the wife of one of his faithful soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. And you all know the story how he killed Uriah to obtain Bathsheba. And after a year, Nathan, that brave prophet of God at the risk of his life, came in and said to David, you're the man. And David, from the depths of his heart, cried out Psalm 51. 19 verses if I remember right. And in the middle of that psalm is verse 10. David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What David needed was not knowledge of an all-pervading principle, an elegant equation, or a deistic God who's an absentee landlord. He needed the assurance of a personal God who would create in Him a clean heart, a new heart. This is what I needed, and I'll get to that story in just a minute. 
2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul went to the intellectual capital of the ancient world, Athens. Athens famous for its mathematicians, the Pythagoreans, the philosophers Aristotle and Plato. They were the intellectuals of the ancient world. And as he walked around, he noticed, this is Acts 17, an altar to the unknown God. And he said, I'm here to present to you the unknown God that you're worshiping, that you're talking about. And then he talks about the Creator. And in Him we live and move and have our being. And he talked about Jesus and the resurrection. A few accepted Him. He then went on to Corinth. Many accepted Him in that Las Vegas of the ancient world. But there were some in Athens, and that's who we have a burden for, my wife and myself. People in the scientific community who are highly trained in secular thinking, but they need Jesus, just like David did, just like I do. So what's my story? I was raised in the heartland of Seventh-day Adventism, Battle Creek, Michigan. I went to Battle Creek Academy, the very first academy in the world of the Seventh-day Adventist church. I went there for 10 years, first to sixth grade and then nine to 12. And as I went through the Adventist system, this is back in the 60s, I remember thinking, is it possible that my teacher in this little 120 student church-sponsored high school could be right? And the professors at Stanford, Caltech, MIT, Princeton, all the major universities could be wrong about creation, about evolution? We got Scientific American, National Geographic, we got these little booklets from the Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, I was fascinated by atomic weapons. The Cold War, of course, was going on in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up. And uh, I was fascinated by all that. And we got all these little booklets about the science of atomic energy. And I couldn't help but notice that most all these scientists believed in an evolutionary scenario. So how could it be that this little school was right and all these others were wrong? Another question. When I got into mathematics, I realized that during the first third of the 20th century, the Germans dominated that, plus many other sciences and technology, if any history buffs here will know. And I would puzzle, how could such a smart people do such terrible things as they did during World War II in the concentration camps. I thought if you were smart, you would be good. I couldn't figure that out. And then the third question, how is it possible that a good God could allow something so horrible as the Holocaust? How could that be? To make a long story short, by the age of 20, I had become an agnostic, not quite an atheist, a skeptic, no faith in God, nothing. 
and no hope for the future because outside of the promises of the Bible, there is no hope. But I thought that's reality. Um, I didn't think I could be a scientist and a Christian. One night in November of 1970, a young man came to my dorm room and he said, Jim, God loves you. His name was Bob. And I said, Bob, it's fine with me if you want to believe in a God and that makes you happy, but I don't want to believe just to make myself happy. But all he said, he didn't try to argue he was an art major. He didn't try to argue science with me. He just said, God loves you. Three words. I began to avoid Bob. A few weeks later, about midnight in my dorm room, I had a totally unexpected experience. I was not able to go to sleep, which was rare for me. I was lying there. My life was going down the drain. And I heard music. I heard singing very distinctly. But I didn't know the words. It was so distinct that I thought, there is a God. And He loves me. And He's trying to get through to me. I got out of bed and I stood there in that dorm room wrestling with the decision which I knew would change my life. And finally I said, God, I'm yours. I didn't know what would happen next. What happened next was I ended up dropping out of college, um, ending up at a little self-supporting institution outside of Chattanooga called Wildwood Medical Missionary Institute. Any of you ever heard of that institution? At the time, Elder W.D. Frizee was going strong, and he helped me gain an appreciation for the Bible and the writings of Ellen White. And I was shocked to discover how much he talked about science. And she had something to say in the book Ministry of Healing that directly answered my question that we just talked about. She says, and I, this is 461-462, Adam and Eve were surrounded by a robe of light. But when they sinned, they lost that robe of light and they no longer could read or write the book of nature. So today, man cannot of himself read or write the character of God in nature. This is why mere human ideas in regard to science so often contradict the teaching of God's Word. We were changed radically at the fall. So what's the solution? This blew my mind. It still does. Two sentences. But for those who receive the light of the life of Christ, nature is again illuminated. In the light shining from the cross, we can rightly interpret nature's teaching. Now, I've had many math and science classes. And I have, many, I have a big library at home. All kinds of statistics books, math books, and so on. How many of your science books and math books started on the first page with the assumption that you need to understand the life of Christ to understand science? Any of them? Page 462, Ministry of Healing. 
Highly recommend this material. It's in the chapter, Knowledge Received Through God's Word. Ah, how do you understand science in the light of the cross? I'm still wrestling with that. And after the seminar, if anyone wants to share ideas of how you would do that, please share with me. Um, you can go to the universities of the world and look at all their big libraries and look at thousands of volumes and you won't find this. That was a start for me. And then, I'll say this, I gave up on science. It had such a terrible effect on my life, I gave up on science. Wildwood asked me to teach at their little academy, Stone Cave Academy, that's where I met my wife, Virginia. And I thought I'd be there the rest of my life. One morning, early in the morning, I was reading the book, Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 186, and I came across this sentence. A knowledge of science of all kinds is power. And it is in the purpose of God that advanced science shall be taught in our schools as a work that must precede the closing scenes of this earth's history. Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 186. But she also talks the importance of the importance of the science of salvation, the need for both. Then I got into the book, Christ's Object Lessons, and I realized that Jesus used the simplest possible illustrations in teaching truth. And I was very much impressed by that. She says, Christ's Object Lessons, page 25, let everything that the children handle be made a lesson for character building. So I began to think, in the everyday things of life, there must be spiritual lessons that will help us know God. If God is a God of love, you don't have to have a PhD in physics to understand Him. It's got to be obvious and available to the honest heart in the things around us. So that led me to begin developing a series of talks based on everyday things. And that's where I'm going to get started now with our first talk, just a quick overview, and then Virginia will do a few minutes of her part on one of the most common objects in American life at least, and that's a bottle of water. So our first talk is Jesus and a bottle of water. Now, I can't go into all the details of the chemistry and the physics of the water in here, but it is mind-boggling. If I could just understand the science of this water, I'd be the world's greatest scientist. I know just a little bit, and I'd like to share a little of that with you. So, Jesus and a bottle of water. Just to note, water's the first chemical mentioned in the Bible. The second verse, which is interesting to me, it was made by Jesus because it says in John 1.3, all things were made by Him. I talk a little bit about, of course, you all know the chemistry, H2O, and since this is an overview, we're not going to go into that. But I ask the people, how many atoms are in a bottle of water? 
I don't know if anyone here would like to guess. John has been in our seminar. Uh, I, I do a little of the chemistry, try to make it as simple as possible. We have some of the details in the notes. Um, it turns out there's 10 to the 23 atoms in one gram of water, and we've got 500 grams here. So that number right there, that huge number, is the number of atoms in a gram, which means there's 500 times 10 to the 23 atoms in this bottle of water. Well, that number's so big, we can't comprehend it. So how can I make that real to people? What I do, I start a counter. I'm not going to do it here. Do a little experiment. We start the counter and I ask everybody, how many counts a second can you perceive? Everybody can see the one per second. Ten per second is right at the limit of your perception. And I came up with the maximum for a human of 15.8 counts per second. That's actually a little bit beyond human perception. But it comes out to a nice 500 million a year. If you were to count 15.8 atoms a second, you would get 500 million in a year. And we had 500 in our previous a number for the number of atoms in a bottle of water. So if you do a little bit of math, to count the atoms in this bottle of water, 15.8 atoms a second, night and day, 24-7, would take you 100 quadrillion. Not million, not billion, not trillion, 100 quadrillion years. And then I tell the people, I don't think anybody understands the complexity in one bottle of water. Do you? Can anyone here really tell me that you understand a quadrillion? In a quadrillion years, you would have counted 1% of the bottle. You had just barely started. So point number one, Jesus has incredible wisdom to be able to pack that much complexity into a single bottle of water. Would you agree? It's amazing. I don't understand it, but the math is pretty simple and I can do it. Then I talk to the people about an area that's very close to me since I've worked in the Department of Energy Complex for many years. That's the energy in the nuclei of these hydrogen and oxygen atoms. This picture on the screen is the first atomic explosion in the history of mankind. It happened July 16 at 5.30 in the morning in Almogordo, New Mexico. It's called the Trinity Test. The plutonium fueling this test comes from Hanford, where I have been for about 19 years. And so, I know something about this by experience. Um, you can see the Statue of Liberty for scale there. This is 16 milliseconds after ignition. It's 660 feet tall. I've read the accounts of the scientists who were there early that July morning, 1945. They were awestruck. The awesome energy released from just a tiny bit of matter. 
was awe-inspiring. How much matter was converted into energy that July morning? Just one gram. And how much is a gram? It's the mass of a dollar bill. A nickel is five grams. Five hundred atom bombs worth of energy in a bottle of water, in the mass of a bottle of water. Five hundred! It's actually five hundred and ten, depending on your, your uh, conversion factor. Where did that energy come from? I, I don't have time to go into this. I need to give Virginia some time. For those scientists among us, it's 45 quadrillion joules, which is about 510 trinity size atom bombs right here. What would 500 atom bombs do to the United States if they were spread out? It would obliterate us, wouldn't it? But think of it. You are made of water. About half of your body is water. How much energy is in your own body? It's phenomenal. That's what it took to create it in the first place. The Bible tells us by the Word of the Lord were the heavens made. And that Creator of water told that poor lady at the well, if you'd ask me, I'd give you living water. Which I find very inspiring. And the final, one of the final promises in the whole Bible is the Spirit and the Bride say, come and let Him, let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Summary, water reveals incredible complexity and awesome energy. It points to an amazing Creator who is also our Savior. And now Virginia has a few thoughts to follow on. my hand a loaf of homemade bread. How many of you like homemade bread? I can almost smell it. I love homemade bread. Jim loves homemade bread. Everything Jim said about a bottle of water, basically a pound of water, is also true about a pound of bread. Except there's something else. There's no nutrition in water. And there is in bread. So when you eat bread, that nourishes your body. And what you do when you digest that bread is take apart the molecules. And we measure that energy in calories. And we try to get enough calories, but not too many. Because we know what happens when we get too many. But the thing that fascinates me about the bread, about the molecules is that they're made up of atoms and they have if you could get at the nucleus of each of those atoms we would have 510 atom bombs worth of energy in a loaf of bread if we could get at it now it's kind of like your gas tank you can only take out of it what has already been put into it right? You can't take out anything that hasn't been put in. 
So what was it that put that energy in there? Who was it? People talk about God creating from nothing. It seems to me, this is the way my imagination works, God didn't create from nothing. He created from himself, from his own infinite energy. And God is not nothing. And so, the Bible says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood fast. Remember what also Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall man live. And he was quoting from Moses. So that had been in the literature, the Hebrew mindset, for thousands of years. Man doesn't live by bread. As important as bread is, and God has promised our bread and water will be sure. But think with me for a minute and turn to your notes. This would be just about the last paragraph from Jesus and a bottle of water. The paragraph that begins, the creative energy that called the worlds into existence is in the word of God. And yes, this is the spoken word that God spoke at creation. We don't know exactly when he created all the matter in the universe, but we know that whatever, whenever it was, God did it. But this is the word of God, too. The creative energy that called the worlds into existence is in the word of God. This word imparts power. It begets life. Every command is a promise. Accepted by the will, received into the soul, it brings with it the life of the infinite one. It transforms the nature and recreates the soul in the image of God. I'm grateful for the power of God in his word. Amen. It's not enough just to have it on the shelf. It needs to be in our hearts. It needs to be applied. Way back in 1991, 1992, I had gotten started doing stained glass. My very first commission the man told me, I want bevels, I want teal green, I want mauve, I want peach. And it needs to go in this space. And I sat on the couch and prayed, dear God, I don't know what to do. I have never really designed for stained glass before. I've done some painting. I've done some graphic design. I've done some clothing design. But how do I, do, how do I design for stained glass? I was a novice, and this picture is what came into my mind as an answer to prayer, that particular prayer. But not only this picture, this scripture, for I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, fear not, I will help thee. This scripture became very live for me. I opened my eyes and looked at my right hand. 
This is the hand that holds the cutter. This is the hand that holds the pliers. This is the hand that God says he will guide. I wasn't even sure I could make a good bead on that sweeping a line. I had only done little things before. And so this is the window that I built. There were two of them. Stained glass is an opportunity to get into people's homes, to talk to people, to share with them the reality of God. Sometime later, I was still doing stained glass, and this was the beginning. Grand Junction has a lot of my stained glass work in it. And at one point, I was thinking, I wish, I wish I had some way to put God, glory to God, on my stained glass. But what do you do for people? How do you relate to people that are not believers? And I thought to myself, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't like it if somebody came into my house, if they were a Buddhist and write glory to Buddha on my house. I wouldn't like that. So if I'm supposed to treat others as I would want to be treated, how, what could I do? What could I do? And then Jim brought a book home from the library, and in the front of that book it said, Soli Deo Gloria, alone to God be the glory. And that was a brand new idea for me. If I write it in Latin, that would make it artsy. It wouldn't be in your face. It wouldn't be obnoxious. That's what I should do. I signed all my work. And underneath every signature, I would inscribe, Soli Deo Gloria. And that became, that became a conversation starter with my clients. What does it mean? Why do you put that on there? It's because I have had so many, so many challenges in the studio. I always bit off more than I could chew. And I would pray, dear God, how do I, how do I deal with this oxidation? Oh, wink, it's hydrogen fluoride, hyd excuse me, hydrofluoric acid. To dissolve, dissolve the oxidation on the zinc. Issues with glass selection, issues with design, issues with cutting it, cutting the convoluted lines because nothing can be done simply. Everything has to be as complex as it needs to be to get the design across. God has given me a lot of opportunities to share. And so I tell my clients about answers to prayer. I know from my experience that God is up there. It is not just not just my creative mind. And God has given me a creative mind. He has given me, and I like the emphasis in the last meeting, what do you have in your hand? Well, it's a glass cutter that I have in my hand. But I also have the Bible in my hand. And by the grace of God, he gives me opportunities to share both. What do you have in your hand? What power is in God's word for you? Remember, the creative energy that called the worlds into existence is in the word of God. And that is a great power and a great privilege. So I wonder to myself then, why don't we read it more often? We need that power in our lives, in our minds. 
thank God for that creative power that he puts at our disposal through scripture and through prayer. Thank you, Virginia. That's sort of a quick overview of our first of three meetings. And if you'll just give me a second here, we'll get to the slides for our second meeting outside the box. We bring a one meter by one meter by one meter, that's about a yard by a yard by a yard setup that we build out of three quarter inch PVC plastic where we can build a box on the stage. It's covered with fabric and each of the six sides has a word on it. And we actually do an experiment with kids. We put a kid inside that box and I'm gonna describe that in just a minute. But first of all, the six limitations that illustrate for me why scientists cannot see God unless... Let's see, did you turn off that mic? Okay. Unless they have the Word of God to combine with the study of nature. So the past, I ask the people in our seminar, can you go backwards and observe things in the past one year? One day, one billion years, four billion years? And the obvious answer is no. Nobody can go back three or four billion years and observe whether life was originating by a natural process or not. Am I right? You can't do it. You can't go. So that's limitation number one. And on the opposite side of the box, we have the future. Is it possible to go into the future five billion years when scientists estimate the sun will run out of fuel and everyone will die on earth? Is that possible? And the answer is obviously no. The experts couldn't even predict Trump's election one day ahead of November 8. Am I right? Most experts got it wrong. Let alone five billion years. It amuses me to see cosmologists talk about what was happening 13.8 billion years ago in the first millionth or billionth of a second after the purported Big Bang, speaking very confidently about this microsecond and that microsecond, when we can't look ahead a day or look back to things that happened in the distant past. So that's another limitation. The front of the box, it says infinity. 2,500 years ago, the Greeks believed that all truths in the universe were basically mathematical, and it is possible to represent all this by ratios of whole numbers called rational numbers. And then a mathematician to their whore discovered that if you take a unit square, just a square with sides one foot, one meter, one anything, and calculate the length of the diagonal of that square. It's the square root of two. And that number is 1.41 dot, dot, dot. What do the three dots mean? It goes forever. 
just a quick story. In 2011, I was given an award by DOE for some software I was involved in. We went to a place near Lawrence Livermore in California for the award ceremony. At the ceremony, there was a lady there who had a PhD in geophysics from MIT. And she came up to me and said, she was using this software, Visual Sample Plan. You can Google it. And it's still being supported by the government. After quite a few years, we started that in 1997, originally. Anyway, I told her, this idea came to me in my devotions. Oh, she says, I'm an atheist, but I want to talk to you. So that evening, she and my wife and I, in the hotel convention center, talked until what, 11? Uh, she was 1.30, Virginia says. It was late. And the next day she said, I was up until, what would you say, 3.30, thinking about what you had to say. And uh, so, anyway, when I talked to her, I pointed out to her that the Greeks discovered that infinity is a necessity in the simplest things of mathematics, like the length of the diagonal of a square. And later it was discovered that the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter that we call pi requires, well, as of November of last year, we've calculated 22.4 trillion digits of pi. But it can be proved, we've known since the 1700s, that it goes forever. And we cannot get our hands on the infinite. We're limited. And I could talk a lot more about that, but we must go on. On the back side of our box, it says limitations of deductive logic. In the middle of the 20th century, an uh, obscure mathematician in his 20s, Kurt Gödel of Austria, discovered that even in mathematics, there are limitations that we cannot get around. They're called Gödel's incompleteness theorems. Our mathematics is inherently limited. Not well known to the general public, but it is an absolutely widely accepted fact of mathematics. We are limited even in our best deductive logic. You can look it up online. In physics, in the 1920s, a young German scientist, Werner Heisenberg, discovered that in the very process of measuring subatomic particles, we disturb the very system that we're studying. It's called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Not only can we not know the future, not only can we not know the past, we cannot know in principle the present in all its detail. Therefore, we cannot predict the future because we cannot know the present. Heisenberg was very definite about this, and it turned out it has stood the test of time since the 1920s. Finally, in, two, uh, in 1905, in one of his famous papers, Einstein pointed out the speed of light is an upper speed limit for all items that have mass traveling less than the speed of light. 
And we in our atomic accelerators have now accelerated subatomic particles to 99.9999999. I can say quite a few nines percent the speed of light, but we can never reach it because in the equations relating to this, it requires an infinite amount of energy for an object with mass to travel that speed. Is the speed of light a big number? Well, for us it is. 186,000 miles a second, 300 million meters a second. That's seven and a half times around the world a second at the speed of light. But it's 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way at the speed of light. Andromeda is about 2.5 million years away at the speed of light. We are quarantined. We're in a tiny little emergency zone. I think God has allowed us to be restrictive by this. And so we are in a box. And we need information from outside the box so we can understand reality. Now, in our actual seminars, and my time's just about up here, Virginia, we do two experiments. We put a kid in the box, and we pick numbers. Other kids pick numbers out of a tupper. I need to hurry. We got 10 wood chips in here numbered 1 to 10. And I, have the, I, I tell the kids, we got to follow scientific protocol. Don't say anything out loud. You pull out a number, you look at it, and you show the audience. Everybody sees. And then we have the kid in the box guess. We've done this all over eastern Washington and a few other states. Nobody has ever got it right three times in a row. We always do it three times in a row. The probability is one in a thousand. Then the second experiment, we have the kids write on a card the number each time. Virginia made a slit in the top with a zipper, and we hand the card in, and they get it right every time. The number's on the card. I have a few examples here. The point of it is we're in a box. But God, through inspiration, has given us insight that enables us to go into the past, to look into the distant future, and understand the nature of reality. Let me shut mine off. But the box is not empty. What's in the box? Oh, there's a lot in the box. Oops, it's the wrong direction. Sorry. Now what did I do? Sweetheart, fix this for me. Okay. The box is not empty. All of God's creation is in the box with us. The trees, the snow, the sky... I particularly like the colors in this tree. But it's interesting to me that design 
is not just what things look like. It's how they work. You might recognize that quote from Steve Jobs. Birds singing. Jesus said, think about the flowers, how they grow. Behold the birds of the air. God feeds them. Mama bird feeds the baby birds. And the birds are happy. They're singing. They're giving glory to God. It's in the box that Jesus said, think about the flowers. In the box, behold the birds. It's also in the box that Solomon said, go to the ant and be wise. Something else to think about the ant, besides just the fact that it prepares its food in the summer because it knows winter is coming. Although actually, does it, is it aware of the cold coming? Is it aware of the future? I don't think so. I think it's an instinct that they're following. But we'll get to instinct later. Ants have a stinger. Was that stinger part of the original creation? I don't think so. Because the restoration, after this earth is destroyed and recreated, everything will be brought back to where God originally designed it to be. And God said there will be nothing to hurt or destroy in all his holy mountain. There will be no stingers in heaven. How many of you have ever encountered fire ants? You know how they will crawl up your clothes, crawl up your legs. They're so small you don't even recognize they're there until they all bite at once. Or I should say they all sting at once. It's the other end, not the biting end. Those fire ants are an evidence that something has gone wrong. Where did it go wrong? In nature, we see evidence of God and his design. Just even in the way things are designed, the spiral, you think of the, the chambered nautilus, that's a very specific mathematical spiral based on the Fibonacci series. That's the very same spiral that you will see in the base of a pine cone. It's the very same spiral you see in the way stems grow around a trunk or a larger stem. Leaves grow on the stem. It's very fascinating the way God designed things to operate. And very fascinating to see how he designed this similarity. I used to wish... Jim has talked about it often. Wish God had put his signature on things. But then I've come to think he did. Except rather than our language, it's more of a fingerprint or a thumbprint. There's an interesting story about an, a new Leonardo da Vinci painting. And when I first heard about it on the radio, I thought, new? I mean, how can there be anything new from da Vinci? He's been dead how many hundred years? but it had not been discovered before that it was his. Long story short, there was no signature on it, so they didn't know that it was his, but they found in the under layers of the pastel a thumbprint that matched his other thumbprints that they knew were his. Signatures can be forged. Fingerprints can't. I believe the devil has been involved 
in the book of nature, corrupting things that God made and then blaming it on God. The Bible helps us understand and sort out the mixed messages that we see in nature. And this is what Ellen White, I believe, is talking about when she says it's in the light of the life of Christ, especially in the light from the cross. The cross helps us see the destructive nature of sin. Jesus took our sin on him and allowed it to kill him. Isaiah 53. And so we see there has been a destructive element in nature. God said in Genesis 3 that there would be thorns and thistles. I think that's probably the tip of the iceberg. We don't know how extensive that curse went in the natural world. We know that it brought death, or should we say sleep, the sleep of death. The only one who has ever suffered the second death is Christ. And so we think about the great controversy. The Bible tells us where the enemy came from and how he got here. The Bible also tells us that he's still telling lies about God. And this is why the science textbooks are not in harmony with the Bible, because there's somebody with an agenda. He's still telling lies. But the Creator is still involved also, and we can choose we can choose to be his and we can choose to listen to him and to understand truth as he explains it. One other thing, and I'm getting ahead of my slides here. The devil is still telling lies about God. Jim and I like to talk about water and water molecule. This is a small model. H2O, two hydrogens, one oxygen. If we were to take hydrogen and oxygen and have them loose in an atmosphere, that would be an explosive situation. But hydrogen and oxygen bonded. It's that bond that makes the difference. This to us is, a, is an object lesson of reality. Reality is composed of the natural and the supernatural bonded. It's not enough just to say, oh, well, you know, you can have science and, and, and religion has to be over here, but science has to be without God. Science is defined without God. If there's God anywhere close, then people say it's not science. But it seems to us as though as hydrogen and oxygen must be bonded in order to be water, so reality must be seen to be composed of the natural plus the supernatural, bonded. Because God is involved in the natural world. In him we live and move and have our being. And by him all things hold together. And so, this is why we have Jesus and science together. We must recognize the involvement of the supernatural in the natural in order to really understand the natural, where it came from, and to recognize also how God is still involved intimately in an everyday basis. 
we need to recognize the dichotomy in the natural, that there's the power of good and there's the power of evil involved. Tooth and claw was not God's design. That came from somewhere else. Poisons, parasites, diseases, those came from the other side. That's evidence of an enemy. It helps to understand the working of good and evil in order to understand the character of the supernatural and the reality of the cosmic conflict. And so we need Jesus and science in order to understand either one. Reality, natural and supernatural, inside and outside the box, and supernatural consists of good and evil. We need Jesus and science. And now we'll go to our third meeting, which is zero probability and the ABCs. So, what we do here. I have a set of ABC blocks and I set them up on the stage. And I have a kid come up and they're randomly just arbitrarily set up with no order. And I start a timer and I have the kid arrange them A, B, C, D, E, F, G, X, Y, Z, you know, the correct arrangement. We've done this in many places. You know how long it takes, like an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, a ten-year-old, to arrange the ABC blocks? It's between a minute and two minutes. Average is about a minute and a half. We just did this last Sabbath in Moses Lake, Washington. The young lady there was one minute and 16 seconds. That was last Sabbath. And uh, so we've been collecting data. Kids can arrange the ABCs in a very short amount of time. Now here's the amazing thing. If you program a computer to randomly arrange the ABCs, quotes, not blocks, but numbers in memory, where 1 stands for A, and 2 stands for B, and 26 stands for Z, and you get the computer to do that a million times a second, how long do you think it would take the computer to get A to Z doing a million a second? A minute? An hour? A day? A week? A month? a year, you have any intuitive feel, you're doing a million a second, how long would it take for a computer, by chance, to get A to Z? Well, the answer's in your notes. And we go through this in detail in our third meeting. This is my area of specialty in uh, statistics the probability of sampling and so on. That's what I was doing for the, the Department of Energy. And I can't go into the details, um, but I'm going to get down here to 
A to Z, if you were to set up the blocks in all the possible ordered arrangements called permutations, that number there is the number of arrangements that you would have. Now that number is 4 times 10 to the 26, and if you want to read it, it's 403 septillion, 291 sextillion, 461 quintillion, 126 quadrillion, 605 trillion, 635 billion, 584 million arrangements of the kindergarten ABC blocks. And you expect the kids to memorize the one and only one correct arrangement. Now we think of that as an easy thing to do. Only because we have been given a phenomenal talent called pattern recognition. Computer scientists are well aware of the incredible difficulty of duplicating your ability to recognize patterns. And this is a beginning example that you all learned quite easily. We have three grandchildren, and it's interesting watching them sing A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You all learned that very easily. No big deal. And so in our seminar, we take some time to uh, go through that. You can do the math for this in Google quite easily. The number of arrangements of the ABCs is just 26 exclamation mark. The exclamation mark works in Google and it means 26 times 25 times 24 times 23. That's called 26 factorial. Divided by 1E6, that's a million a second. And 31.56 million, that's the number of seconds in a year. About 31, 32 million seconds in a year, okay? So, operating at that speed, how long is it going to take the computer to get A to Z? Now, I don't have time to do this, but I need to tell you what we do in many of our seminars. I wrote a program where every time a person hits a button, the computer will do 10 million random arrangements and report the results on the screen. Now afterward, I could show any of you. At one of our meetings, we offered $26,000 to anybody that could get A to Z in one billion trials. Hitting the button, you can do about 50 million a second. We've done this in a lot of different places. Nobody has ever even got halfway through the alphabet A to M. It is phenomenally, unbelievably hard for random processes to get A to Z. It's hard for me to even convey to you mathematically how difficult it is. And yet you learn to do that in kindergarten. You have a phenomenal talent. You may not realize it, but if you can organize the alphabet, organize the dishes in your kitchen, or your food in the cabinet, the pantry, organize the tools in your toolbox, the gift of order is illustrated in Genesis 1. As God lays out the six days of creation week, He's showing us the concept of order and naming and testing. 
And there's a lot there we can't go into. So here's the answer. 12.8 trillion years. Can you comprehend that? What's that? At a million per second. Now, I have personally written computer code to do one run. I ran the computer for hours. I did five trillion random arrangements of the ABCs. Probably I've done more than anyone else on earth. Never got to M. I can get to G and to H. Here's the point of all this. It's incredibly hard for random processes to organize things, to order things. Your talent is awesome. Pattern recognition, pattern memory, and pattern reproduction. And I say, praise the Lord. It's Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation 22, who gave you the ability to create order. Tremendous capability. Now, are there some events that just can't happen, regardless of how long natural processes operate? A to Z can happen, but is there such a thing as a zero probability? Is it possible that some things can't happen, period? I struggled with this one for 10 years because I, was, I learned as a kid, given enough time, anything could happen, and therefore, maybe life just originated spontaneously. So I prayed a long time about this, and this simple little illustration came to me. Put ten numbers in a bag, close your eyes, reach in, what's the chance of pulling out a three? One in ten, right? What's the chance of pulling out 99? It's zero. Why? It's not in the bag. I, so I'm going to have to bring this to a close here. That got me started. That's what really led me to become a statistician. So this simple little experiment shows that some things can't happen. But is it possible that there are areas that are not contrived like my paper bag that we can prove mathematically can't happen? I began to investigate that for decades. I will just tell you, there's an infinite number of zero probabilities in mathematics. All over the place. It's just not talked about. And in your home are squares. The diagonal of the square you can look at and recognize to be the square root of two. There's the first thousand digits at the end are those three little dots. Is there a zero probability? Yes. The square root of two equaling the ratio of whole numbers the Greeks discovered is a zero probability. It simply doesn't exist. You could program a computer to go for trillions of years. It'll never find two whole numbers whose ratio equals the square root of two. It can't happen. And I could go on and on, areas of mathematics where some things just can't happen. And guess what? Is there a zero probability in biology? 
I believe the origin of life by natural processes is a zero probability. Can't go into this. But you are an alphabet. Your DNA is made up of three billion base pairs of chemicals, A-C-G-T, abbreviated. You are an alphabet with incredible capability to reproduce patterns. All of us sitting here have 206 bones in our bodies. You have that pattern, I have that pattern. That's a phenomenal evidence of a pattern reproduction system. Amazing. Amazing. You have an amazing talent. Some events just can't happen. Virginia? Donnie was a lesser white throat warbler in Germany. He was bird-napped when he was an egg. The scientists took him out of his nest and raised him in a lab. They knew what time the lesser white throat warblers would migrate every year. And so they started watching him very carefully to see what he would do when he got closer to that date on the calendar. He became very fidgety. Long story short, they took him into a planetarium and showed him the stars, what the, what the sky would be like above Germany, Freiburg, Germany, at that time of year. And he oriented himself to the southeast. That's where he needed to head. And they changed his stars little by little by little so he would think he was actually going somewhere. And all of a sudden, they took him, they sent him to Siberia. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know what to do. For several minutes, he just was fluttering on his twig. He didn't know where he was until he decided to go back west. That's where he had come from. He could go back to Germany and start all over again from there, which is what he did. And they changed his stars until he got closer and closer to Freiburg. And then he headed southeast again. He knew where he needed to go. He never was taught by his mom or dad or any of his aunts and uncles and cousins. He didn't even have brothers and sisters to go with him to encourage him along. All of that was in his head. And when you think about the size of the egg he hatched from, about the size of the end of my pinky finger, all of that was in his head. All of that is instinct. And I have wished that I had some of that instinct. The Jim has a clock in his head. I don't have a clock in my head or a calendar or maps or anything like that. I can get in the zone in the studio and be absolutely unaware of the passing of time. But Johnny had all of that in his head. But then I began to think about instinct. Johnny could not have gone anywhere else. That's what he was programmed to do. And then I think about the bird nest building. Can robins build like an eagle? Build a nest like an eagle does? Could a bluebird build a hummingbird nest? They can't. They can only do what their instinct programs them to do. Are you and I programmed? Not really. There's a hunger in our hearts, a God-shaped vacuum. 
But what God has given to us, rather than instinct, is words. We have more than just an alphabet. We have, we have the ability to communicate, to talk with each other, to talk with him. Our DNA teaches us that we need contact. We need each other. No man is an island. The top of that box, the meter by meter by meter box, is the one that is labeled the speed of light. And that's the one that has the zipper in the top. God is not limited by the speed of light when he interacts with us, when he shares truth with us. God is, God's inspiration is not limited. But then neither are we. There's a handle on the inside of the box too. When we are reaching out for God, it doesn't take him millions of light years to hear our prayer, does it? He hears right now. He knows our thoughts even before we think them. And so he has given us words to communicate. He gave us scripture. We talked about the power of God in scripture. There's nothing sacred about paper and ink. I used to work in a print shop. Stacks and stacks and stacks of reams of paper, cases of paper. Stacks and stacks and stacks of jars, cans of ink. There's nothing sacred about paper and ink. But scripture is more than just paper and ink. It's our connection with God. It's God's promises to us and his commands to us and his stories of his involvement with us as humans. He wants to be involved with us now. And so we can pray. Even the very beginning of reaching out for God, reaching out for that handle on the zipper on the inside of the box, God is with us right now, right now. And so prayer is the key in the hand of faith that unlocks heaven's storehouse where are treasured the boundless resources of omnipotence. I'm grateful God has given us more than instinct. He's given us communication with himself. And that is a mighty treasure. Thank you, Virginia. We have come to the conclusion of our official time. What we always do in our seminars is have a question and answer period. So I'm going to conclude with a word of prayer. And then anyone who'd like to stay around, we like to talk about what you're interested in, whether it's the history of the weapons development program that I've been involved in, or questions of creation, or sometimes dinosaurs. We get all kinds of questions. Evolution, theistic, all these kinds of things. But uh, we have, I like to stay on time, come to the end. Our goal, in a nutshell, is to simply point to Jesus through science and scripture, to inspire people that the creator of the proton, the electron, the neutron, the molecule, the living cell, the organism, the solar system, the Milky Way, 
And this vast universe is the one hanging on the cross for you and me. To me, that's the most revolutionary thought in the universe. That the Creator of all that would die just for me is mind-boggling and changes everything. May God bless you in your study of science and the Word. Let's stand and have a closing prayer. And please stay by if you'd like to talk and ask questions or, or share comments. Heavenly Father, we are amazed as we consider that Jesus, the eternal God, creator of the universe, would come to this atom of a world, be born as a baby, live as a humble carpenter, and die for us. We thank You for this infinite sacrifice and praise You for Your love. I pray for each one here as we go our separate ways that we will see more clearly by Your Spirit Your character in the simple things around us. Thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.